Now as we come to this season of the year, we normally will contemplate the theme of the Incarnation. It's not because we can't contemplate that theme on other occasions as well. It is certainly appropriate for any part of the year and any Lord's Day of the year. But like Spurgeon of old, we can say that when the tide of thought is running in a certain direction, as it does at Christmas time, we will take advantage of that and seek to float upon that tide. And so we want to bring messages today that are appropriate to the season. In particular this morning, I want us to think about the ministry of angels. I don't know if you've thought much upon this, but the subject of angels and angelic activity is found all throughout the Bible. And angels, while they are mostly and usually unseen creatures to us, there have been times when they have been seen, when they have been witnessed walking among men. And there are plenty of biblical examples for this. I know that in the book of Hebrews, we are exhorted by the servant of God, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And I think in particular, when we look at that verse, Hebrews 13, verse 2, we can think immediately of Abraham. Because when there were three men who came to see Abraham, he was unaware at that particular time of the fact that he was dealing with an angel of the Lord. Samson's parents were engaged by an angel. They didn't know it at the time, but he introduced himself and said that his name was Wonderful. And there are many, many other examples in the Bible of the appearances of angels among men. So the ministry of angels is a really wonderful theme for study. And I would recommend it to you. Get yourself a good concordance and just look up the word angel. And you'll find that in most instances, not every one, but in most instances, it's referring to heavenly beings. There are those times when an angel will be a reference to a man or a person. And the best example of that would be in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where in each of those churches in Asia, there was an angel of the church. The word in the Greek is angelos, which can be translated angel or messenger. And so in those instances, the angel being talked about is the minister of each church. And maybe you never thought of your minister as an angel before, unless it might be a fallen angel. But certainly, when you're looking at the Scripture and its mention of angels, it's normally, and particularly, dealing with heavenly beings. When we come to the subject of the Incarnation, we know that the purpose of it, the reason for it, was the salvation of the lost. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, as that wonderful text illustrates and, and speaks of, to save sinners. 
The manger was in order to the cross. He came to Bethlehem so that he would eventually go to Calvary, where he would give his life a ransom for many. Now, therefore, when we talk about the Incarnation, it has to do with the subject of salvation. And where salvation of sinners is concerned, that is a topic that angels are very much interested in. Someone wrote a beautiful hymn, which contains the sentiment that those who are converted among men are able to sing a song that angels never sang. Angels are interested in our salvation. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 12, it speaks of this gospel that was revealed to the prophets of old. And it says, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Which things the angels desire to look into. You just think about that statement there. Which things the angels desire to look into. The angels are interested in the subject of salvation of sinners. And perhaps it's because the angels themselves know nothing about redemption. The angels themselves know nothing about what it is to be sinful and in need of a saviour. That is, the angels in heaven who have never sinned. They have no conception. They have no frame of reference of what it means to be a deep-dyed sinner who is in need of forgiveness. And so they're really interested in salvation, in these things. And actually, when it says that these are things that the angels desire to look into, the Greek language introduces the thought of craning their necks the way that we would do when we see something happening on the other side of the highway. You know what rubbernecking is. Well, that's what this is actually talking about. Which things the angels desire to look into. They're, they're so curious about salvation. Isn't that an amazing thing? But angels are not only interested in the matter of salvation. Angels have been interested in the Incarnation, therefore, and they were certainly associated with it. As you study your Bible and the various references to the Lord's coming into the world, the ministry of angels is prominent. They are, they are associated with the Incarnation. But not only that, they were those who announced the Incarnation. The announcement of Christ's birth was very much the work of Angels, they were deeply involved in it. We see this from Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, where an angel appeared to Joseph who was espoused to Mary. He was not quite married to her yet. It was a form of strong engagement, espousement among the Jews, so much so that if you broke that engagement, you would have to go through a divorce proceeding. And that's what it means when it says he was minded to put her away privately. It was a divorce proceeding that he was going to engage in because he thought that she was expecting a child to some other man. He was wrong, of course. 
But the angel, when he came to Joseph, he appeared to him and said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Of course, an angel also appeared on that night when Jesus was born. We read about this in Luke chapter 2. And the angelic host that appeared in heaven afterwards confirmed the fact that the Christ child had been born. It says there in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 that there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. An angel appearing to announce the birth of Christ. Among the angels, none was more engaged in announcing Christ's coming into the world than Gabriel. I want to speak about the ministry of Gabriel today. The Bible actually records four different appearances of this angel. You'll read about two of them in the book of Daniel, in chapter 8 of Daniel and chapter 9. And you'll read... The other two in Luke's Gospel, both there in chapter 1. You'll notice that three of these appearances of Gabriel have to do with the subject of the Incarnation. Now the first of these, what we might call Christmas appearances of Gabriel, came about 500 years before Christ came into the world. If you go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 9, you'll see that occasion when this angel Gabriel appeared to the prophet in the city of Babylon. Daniel chapter 9 from verse 20, the Bible says, And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And as you read on, you will see that he mentions at least on two occasions, the Messiah. In verse 25, he calls him Messiah the Prince. And in verse 26, speaking about about Messiah being cut off, but not for himself. He's referring to the coming of Christ into the world. Now the circumstances of this are that Daniel had been reading his Bible to ascertain exactly when the period of captivity of his people in Babylon would come to an end. 
He was trying to search from the Scriptures to see when that would happen. And all of a sudden, Gabriel appeared and announced to Daniel that he had actually come to give him understanding. And you'll see that in verse 2, that in the first year of his reign, he says, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So here's Daniel searching the Bible to find out exactly when that period of 70 years would come to an end. And as he does this, right in the middle of his reading, verse 22 tells us that the angel Gabriel informed him, talked with him, and he said, O Daniel, I now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. Now Daniel thought he was going to be given understanding upon the matter of the 70 years captivity and when it was coming to an end. But Gabriel actually came to give Daniel information and insight into a far greater subject. The coming of Christ. The incarnation. He was getting Daniel's eyes effectively off of the the pressing issue of his day to an event of far greater importance. Now, Gabriel appeared a second time in relation to the Incarnation. Gabriel's second appearance was to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. I want you to turn there for a moment. Luke chapter 1 from verse 5. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. And as we read on, we find the details culminating in the words here of verse 13. Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. You'll see in verse 19 that the angel introduced himself as Gabriel. I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. On this occasion, the angel is not announcing the birth of Christ per se, he's announcing the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, one who is preparing the way for Christ. Now, six months After appearing to Zacharias here, you will read in Luke chapter 1 from verse 26 that Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce the forthcoming birth of the Savior himself. So there's a very close link between Gabriel, the angel, and the incarnation. I want us to think today of this subject of the ministry of Gabriel in relation to the incarnation of Christ. 
First of all, let's think about the mission of the Incarnation as stated by Gabriel. What was the purpose of Christ coming into the world? Well, if you look at the words of Gabriel on each of these occasions that I mentioned, we can see certain themes that emerge. For example, we can say that Gabriel preached the mission of the Incarnation in his message to Daniel in particular. Gabriel said that the Messiah would be, quote, cut off, but not for himself. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now what does that mean, he'd be cut off? Well, it means that he would die, but that his death would be for others. Through that death, he would, to quote the scripture here, finish the transgression. Verse 24 of Daniel 9. He would finish the transgression. Make an end of sins. What a tremendous statement that is. To make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. I could preach for a very long time on each of those. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. There's peace with God through Christ. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. A righteousness that would never pass away. How would that happen? As well as sealing up vision and prophecy... That means fulfilling it and anointing the most holy. This is a grand statement of the redeeming purpose of Christ. The Lord Jesus came into the world to die. He came to die not for himself, however, but for others to die for us. And in doing so, to provide forgiveness for our sins. And an eternal righteousness that we would enjoy before God. After dying on Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus entered into heaven to make intercession for his people. That's what he's engaged in right now. And that's what's being referred to when it says that he anointed the most holy. And all of this that Jesus did fulfilled not only the prophecies of Daniel the prophet but many other prophecies of the Old Testament besides. Read Psalm 22. See how it speaks there of the cross of Christ, the purpose for which he came, to be pierced. And then Isaiah 53. What a tremendous statement of what happened at Calvary, where the prophet uses the device known as the prophetic past. He talks about things that are yet future, but as if they had already occurred. For example, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That was written some 800 years or so before it happened in time. And yet he talks about it as if it has already taken place. Because he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And just study the messianic psalms. And just study those portions where it speaks of the fact that his back ran like a ploughed field 
red with blood. And all of those great prophecies were fulfilled in the Incarnation. What was the purpose of Christ coming into the world? That he might die for sinners. But as well as the great purpose of Christ's coming, the mission of the Incarnation, we can say that in the ministry of Gabriel, he announced the manner of the Incarnation. And this is very important. The manner of the Incarnation. Now, the word Incarnation, let me just explain, in case you're not aware, to be incarnated means to be embodied in flesh or to take on flesh. And that's what God did in the person of Jesus Christ. He took on human flesh. The idea that he was God, but somehow he morphed into a man is not correct. To think that Jesus was God, but he left aside his Godhood and turned into a man. That is not true. What happened was, Jesus Christ, who is God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took into union with his deity, our humanity, without sin. And he became the God-man mediator. I don't want to get all bogged down with theological terms today, but you could study the uni-personality of Christ. You could study what is called the hypostatical union of the natures of Christ, the divine and human nature combined, but not so commixed and intermixed that they're lost, because he continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures, and yet one person forever. It's all very mysterious, but it's true. God, in Christ, took into union with himself our flesh, became the God-man mediator. That is what is called the incarnation. Now, how was that going to happen? Well, Gabriel, when he appeared to Mary, stressed the manner of the incarnation in that Christ was going to be born like nobody else before him or since him. His birth is unique. Because unlike all other men, he was to be born of a virgin. Now, this is why unbelievers, not just outside of the church, but those who profess to be in the church, some ministers, bishops and so on, don't believe in the incarnation. They don't believe in the virgin birth. There was a very, I was going to say famous, there was an infamous bishop of the Church of England called David Jenkins. Uh, he was the Bishop of Durham, northeast England. He was a noted Unbeliever. I don't know why the man was even in the ministry, because everything he said was a denial of the Scripture, practically. He said of the resurrection, for example, that it was akin to a conjuring trick using bones. Making fun of it, mocking the resurrection of Christ, because he didn't believe in the miraculous. And he said he didn't believe in the virgin birth of Christ, that it wasn't necessary to be a Christian to believe in the virgin birth, because a virgin birth is impossible. Well, of course, a virgin birth is impossible if you leave God out. If God's not involved, of course it's impossible. And Mary herself understood that. She said, how can this be since I know not a man? And she meant in a carnal sense. How am I going to have a baby? 
without a human father. That's what she said. And here's what Gabriel said. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, saying, I know not a man? Good question. How is there going to be a virgin birth? The angel answered and said unto her, verse 35, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And furthermore, Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. For with God nothing shall be impossible. So it's not impossible for an old lady who's long past the age of childbearing to have a child. That's Elizabeth. And it's not impossible for you, Mary, as a virgin, to have a child. Because the Holy Ghost is involved. And so Gabriel stressed this truth. A truth, as I say, that is disputed. But yet when you study the Bible as a whole, it's inescapable. Two of the Gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, both deal with that subject. But obviously it was spoken of in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, you have that wonderful statement. Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, and I believe the definite article should be there, the virgin. The word is Alma in the original Hebrew. It's used 12 times in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. And in each of those instances, it's referring to a pure virgin. There's another Hebrew word that could have been used for virgin. It means a young woman of marriageable age. It's the word Bethula. And it's a word that was used of Rebecca in the book of Genesis. And the Holy Ghost had to add the words, Neither had any man known her just to make sure that you knew that it was talking about a chaste girl at that time. But when Alma is used, as it is here in Isaiah 7.14, there's no need for any qualification, because the word always means, and I mean always means, a pure virgin. And so there is a particular virgin in view here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And when you read Matthew chapter 1, and verse 23, the words of the prophet are rehearsed there by the angel. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. In Luke's account of the virgin birth, what we might note especially is that Luke himself was the beloved physician. He was a doctor. Wouldn't you think a doctor, a medical doctor, would have been naturally skeptical of a virgin birth? Of anyone, he would know that that wasn't possible normally. 
But isn't it interesting that Luke begins his gospel by telling us that he had examined very, very carefully the entire gospel record. And he uses this term, Luke chapter 1 and verse 3, having had perfect knowledge or perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. What does that mean? Well, it's tantamount to saying that he had traced all things accurately. In other words, the gospel that Luke produced is something that came about through the painstaking research of a man who wasn't just readily given to accepting myths and superstitions. But he's an an, an evangelist. The one who gives the fullest account, you might note, of the virgin birth. Dr. Luke. One man wrote, all of Luke's training and experience as a doctor would deny the possibility of a virgin birth. To record such an occurrence as a fact would subject Luke to great criticism. Yet the evidence was so conclusive that he gave the most complete story of the virgin birth of Jesus on record. And of course, Gabriel's message here on the fact that it was a virgin birth points up an essential point in the gospel message. And it's this. There could be no salvation for you or for me or any other sinner without the virgin birth. It is so important. It is a fundamental of the faith. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, had to take on our humanity in order to save us. But he had to do so in a way that was different from our humanity, in that he could not be taking on him a sinful nature. And you see, if he had not been born of a virgin If he'd been born like the rest of us of natural generation, then he would have been a sinner like the rest of us. Because the Bible says that in Adam all sin. So we're all sinners because we're in Adam's line. Therefore the Lord Jesus, if he had been a sinner, then he could not have done anything for our salvation. He would have been a sinner himself. He himself would have been in need of redemption and of salvation. But the virgin birth takes care of this. He was born of her, as one of the great catechism questions puts it, yet without sin. So the manner of the incarnation is important. I think as well when you come to the ministry of Gabriel, you have to think about the majesty in the incarnation. This was something recognized by the wise men when they came sometime after his birth, when he was in infancy still, to see Herod. They came from the wise, they came these wise men from the east to Jerusalem. And what did they say? The first question of the New Testament. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Christ is a king. And that is something that Gabriel talked about. It's something he emphasized in Luke chapter 1 
if you notice in verse 33, if you look at the verse 32 as well, the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now the Lord, centuries before this, had made a promise to King David himself. You can read about it in Second Samuel chapter 7. And I'll just read those verses for you right now. Second Samuel 7, from verse 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, in other words, when you're dead, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now look at verse 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, there came a time in Israel when there was no king on the throne. So what happened to this promise? Well, this promise is fulfilled in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the king. The king who reigns forever. And not over some earthly political kingdom either, but over a spiritual kingdom. Remember in the garden, the Lord said to Peter, put your sword up into the sheath. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But now is my kingdom not from hence. See, this rule, this kingdom of Christ, it's a spiritual kingdom where he rules in the hearts of his people. The kingdom of God is within you, the Bible says. But then again, it will culminate in a kingdom of glory that's going to be universally acknowledged. And there are many, many scriptures that speak to this. We could consider Luke 17, verse 21. If we had time, we could look at John 18, 36 and 37. We could look at Romans 14, verse 17. We could consider the wonderful words of the exaltation of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. We could look at Psalm 24, where it speaks of this King of glory. Isn't it good to be part of the kingdom of Christ? As one song puts it, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. When all other kings and all other kingdoms have passed away, the kingdom of Christ will endure. This is a message, this is the great majesty of the incarnation that was announced by Gabriel. And obviously there's one other thing to consider. And it is the great message of the incarnation as announced by Gabriel. And what is that message? It's the necessity of faith and trust in Christ. And you can see this in the appearances of Gabriel to Zacharias and to Mary. We see it here in Luke chapter 1. One of the problems with, one, well, the great problem with Zacharias was his unbelief. And Mary also expressed something of unbelief, didn't she? When she said, how shall this be? Seeing I know not 
a man. You think about what happened with Zacharias. Luke chapter 1 verse 17. And he's talking about John the Baptist. Who was going to be born to Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. What was he going to do? Well, he was going to play this unique role in God's purpose, preparing the way for the Messiah to come. Luke chapter 1 verse 17. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias or Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. His was a work of preparation. He was the forerunner talked about in Isaiah chapter 40. And Gabriel appeared to Zacharias to tell him about this, to announce that he and his elderly wife Elizabeth were soon going to become the parents of a very special boy, John the Baptist. And the birth of this special young man would mean that the long-awaited Messiah was about to appear. He was standing right at the door, so to speak. But there was a problem. Zacharias was an old man, and his wife was an old woman. And they could not have a child. Look, chapter 1, verse 18. Remember, Zacharias was the Lord's priest. I've heard people say the greatest amount of rubbish about this type of thing. I remember a fellow I knew who was in the ministry and he and his wife couldn't have any children. And because the Bible said that the qualification of an elder included how they were to bring up their family, therefore he couldn't be a minister. And I said at the time, absolute bunkum. Robert Murray McShane wasn't even married, let alone have a family. But he was in the ministry. Zacharias was a priest of the Lord, had been for many years, and he and Elizabeth had no children. They couldn't. It was a medical problem, and that's just the way it is in the providence of God with some people. But here we have this problem that they had. Verse 18 identifies it. Zacharias said to the angel, Whereby shall I know this? How's that going to happen? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. That ship has sailed We're not going to have any children at our age. Are you kidding me? That's basically what he was saying. And so, Zacharias thought this thing to be impossible, and he expressed his unbelief. And what happened to him? Well, as a result of that, the Lord struck him with a severe chastisement, namely that he was unable to speak until after John the Baptist was born. Some wives might imagine that that is a blessing from the Lord, that their husband would not be able to speak until after the child was born. But this was a judgment. And you see it in verses 20 and 21. He says, And behold, thou shalt be dumb. After introducing himself, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. I am sent to speak to thee, to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Why? Because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And you'll notice when he came out of the temple, verse 22, he couldn't speak to them. 
he couldn't speak. He wasn't able because the Lord had put his hand upon him. Zacharias refused to believe Gabriel's message. Now, Mary, on the other hand, quite quickly and readily embraced the message that the angel brought to her. She did say initially, How shall this be? But when she got the answer from the angel in verse 35 and 36 and 7, What did she say? Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. She believed. And yet, when you think about it, Zacharias had more grounds for believing that he and his wife could have a child than Mary did for believing that she could have a child without the involvement of a human father. How so? Well, because there was a historical precedent for the thing that he was asked to believe in. What was that? Well, he should have known himself, Abraham and Sarah. Remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? Abraham is an old man, Sarah is an old woman. And they had both been asked to believe that God would give them a son in their old age. And they both protested that this couldn't happen. Sarah, when she heard it, she laughed under her breath. And then she tried to deny it. When the Lord said, you laughed. Oh no, I didn't. Oh, but you did laugh. God knew that she was skeptical. And you can read about it in Genesis chapter 18, 1 through 15. We haven't time to read those verses now. But they've been asked to believe that God was going to give them a son in their old age, Isaac. And that happened. So there was a historical precedent for what Zacharias was being asked to believe. It happened once before, at least, in the history of Israel. But what Mary was being asked to believe had never happened before and hasn't happened since. There's never been a virgin on the face of the earth that ever conceived and gave birth to a son without the involvement of a man. And so Zacharias really is an illustration to us, is he not, of the unbelieving believer. See, Christians can be full of unbelief. Ministers can be full of unbelief. There was a man who came to Jesus with a son who was very, very ill. And he kind of believed, but at the same time he didn't believe. And that's why he had tears in his eyes. And he with tears said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I'm an unbelieving believer. Lord, I I do believe, but help my unbelief. I'm full of unbelief. It's a conundrum. It's a contradiction. And Christians are like that, are they not? Is it not possible to be a child of God this morning and still refuse to believe the Word of God in some area? Maybe you're thinking about a promise that the Lord has given you a long time ago. At least you've taken that as a promise. You've leaned upon that. You've prayed over that. And still it hasn't been fulfilled. And this morning the devil's whispering in your ear and telling you it can't be and it won't be. And your own heart agrees with that. And you have to say, you know, I'm an unbelieving believer. And it's always a sad thing 
to have to admit that we believe in God and we believe in his word, but we fail to believe in him at a certain given point. But you know there's something more sad than an unbelieving believer, and that is an unbeliever, period. Someone who never comes to faith in God at all. It's one thing to have a trembling faith. It's one thing to have faith in God, but it's weak. But to have no faith at all. That's a sad thing, because it's a damning thing. The unbelieving believer, we might argue, will rob himself of of a blessing or blessings of God. But the unbeliever robs himself of eternity without God and without Christ. And the simple fact of the gospel is that salvation is by and through believing. There's a text that we posted out there at the front of the church. And it's the gospel in a nutshell. Many people know it. And it's still true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He that believeth on him, John 3.18 says, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Believing and not believing is the difference between heaven and hell. Simple. Salvation is found in believing. John 5.24 contains the words of Jesus. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Have you believed? This is really the message of the incarnation. There's a Savior who has come and we must believe on him. To the saving of our souls. The jailer at Philippi came crying to Paul and Silas in that prison. And he simply said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I think a lot of people ask that kind of question in our own day. They think they have to do something in order to be saved. What must I do? And Paul didn't tell them to do anything. Paul told them to believe. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Believing on Christ to the saving of the soul. This is really the message of the incarnation, highlighted by Gabriel. There's a Savior, there's one who is King. He has come to die for sinners. This one, as was announced to the shepherds, is a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. May he be the saviour of each and every one of us. Amen.